Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, we're talking about how the Victorians invented mass entertainment with Lee Jackson and his latest book, Palaces of Pleasure. Lee Jackson is a well-known Victorianist and creator of the popular Dictionary of Victorian London website, which you can find at www.victorianlondon.org. He's the author of Dirty Old London, The Victorian Fight Against Filth, which was published by Yale, and Walking Dickens London, and also published by Yale, is his latest book, Palaces of Pleasure, from music halls to the seaside to football, how the Victorians invented mass entertainment, which we're going to be talking about today. Lee, welcome back to Little Atoms. Thank you for having me. So, I sort of covered it, I guess, in that subtitle, <laughs> but what's the idea behind this one? Um, my last book was basically about sort of dirt, filth, pollution, disease, decay. So for a start, I thought I'd try and do something a bit more cheerful. Um, but also, it allowed me to look into sort of various areas of daily life and entertainment and having fun, which we don't normally think about with the Victorians collectively. People tend to look at, say, music halls as a sort of one-off thing, or they might research pubs, or they might even research the Victorian seaside. And I wanted to bring them all together, really, in a sort of overall study of mass entertainment, and just to sort of nose about in the nooks and crannies of sort of Victoriana that I'd always been interested in, but never got around to researching. Yeah, we tend to think of the Victorians as being sort of immune to the idea of pleasure, don't we? We know, think, you know, we are not amused and all that. So where does that idea come from, that they didn't like yeah, I mean, I, it's interesting, isn't it? I think part of the problem is, well, you know, you, you could start with Queen Victoria, you know, uh, half a century in mourning almost, all those sort of sour uh, face pictures of her and indeed of our, our sort of great-great-great-grandparents as well because, you know, the etiquette of a, a formal portrait at that time was to be just look serious and stern and not to pretend that you were capturing a moment. It's just to be there and have a sort of formal picture. And so we have these sort of fixed, static black and white images of the era and even when we have film coming in in sort of the late 1890s so uh, the likes of R.W. Paul who is sort of pioneering uh, filmmaker from Muswell Hill and he films things like uh, entertainments and fun fairs at the Alexandra Palace but again there's no sound so even when we can see them having fun we can't hear them and there's a great description I pick on in the book of um, the Greater Britain exhibition at Earl's Court in I think 1900 or so and it describes all the different sort of instructive colonialist sort of exhibi- exhibits but there's also these sort of funfair elements so one is the water shoot you know the sort of modern theme park style water shoot 
and it says it allows people to indulge in the great British pastime of shouting. And so I just love this idea of shouting, screaming, having fun Victorians. And I'm also very interested in sort of the business of it and who was making money out of it as well. So I think all that sort of comes together. Yeah, so we're going to go through the some of the various areas that you look at in the book. And themes develop. And, and I guess, you know, I sort of want to apologise in advance because as we go through each part, I'm pretty much going to ask the same questions because there's always a thing. There's, there'll be a, a phenomenon that arises around around pleasure. And then often there are people that are against this thing. So that's sort of like, you know, one of the things we'll talk about as we go. And, and we'll, we're going to start with the gin palace, which is like an obvious way of, of getting into that idea. Before we do, though, I want to talk again more generally about the the concept of pleasure for Victorians, because, again, we've said that it's not something we necessarily associate with them. And often, as I said, as we go, we'll see that there are like there are people that think that there's something, I guess, morally degenerate about the idea of particularly working people enjoying themselves yes i think there's definitely a real trend that not just the victorian but the, you know the, the georgian the regency middle class um and particularly the authorities magistrates and so on uh, very much have the idea that they are the guardians of what they would call public morality but what they mean by that is actually the morals of working class people they rarely look into the morals of the middle or upper classes um they're basically concerned with working people with working men and especially working women, because women were seen as frail, vulnerable, susceptible to moral taint, uh, also seen as um, often as prostitutes when it comes to entertainment, because it is places for entertainment, such as the gym palace, the music hall, the exhibition ground, uh, are seen as places where prostitutes might gather, where they might meet clients. And, and indeed they do. And indeed they do. But this all gets merged together in this sort of very Victorian idea of public morality which is that not only people who are actually prostitutes are prostitutes but anyone who steps beyond a very narrow sort of middle class expectation of what particularly women should be are prostitutes and so you get you know girls leaving factories to go to say the eagle tavern pleasure garden on the city road and have some fun and dance and they are by default fallen women because they're going out and seeking pleasure in the company of men and they are unmarried and so the sort of victorian morality tale is not is not just about what we would now see as the prostitute it's about women in general um and yeah you see this attaching to so many of the of the particular things in the book and the one that really surprised me was the gym palace which is basically sort of the the creation of the modern pub really it's essentially having a sort of an open room with a bar where you get served rather than having waiters uh, a room that's very well decorated that's bright and accessible and as soon as that happens around the turn of the 19th century, there's this whole narrative for magistrates to say, hang on, this is actually attracting women into pubs. Before, you know, you might have been seen as rather dubious if you hung around a pub tap room, particularly if you're working class. And now, with these sort of bright, accessible bars, basically, you can walk in, have a quick drink, get out again, and no one's any the wiser. And so you see magistrates actually telling landlords to rebuild their pubs once they put bars in to rip out the bars they put in specifically because they are attracting in women and so i hadn't realized how the sort of the modern pub is almost a force of liberation for women in the early 1800s and so little details like that come out throughout the book you talk in that chapter about 
before this, there being sort of other places that would sort of semi-secretly open up for women. Yeah, to go. so you know, if if you were say uh, if you saw yourself as as relatively respectable, that can mean working class respectable. You might be a servant for a decent household or what have you, or you might be an artisan of some kind, and you were female. Um, you might be able to leave the house to you know you do shopping and what have you. And if you wanted to drink, the guy who you were buying your goods off, you know, the corn chandler or the the shopkeeper, essentially, would say, "Oh, come back to my parlour, just be you know." And there would be a bottle of brandy or a bottle of rum, and you could have a little drink there. And it was all very much so sort of on the sly, and that was the respectable way of female drinking. And the sort of the modern pub with this, this sort of bright lights, advertising, and this sort of ease of access, literally physical ease of access. You can just step into it rather than be some old rambling, crumbling tavern with people in sort of crusty old parlours being served by... No, it's a bright modern shop. And so it's called the Gin Shop in the start of the 19th century, not the Gin Palace, because that's what it is. It's a retail establishment. And it, the Gin Shop is really the first in this whole wave of sort of scaling up into sort of modern, popular ways of serving the needs of the masses rather than sort of limiting pleasure to a minority. So there's obviously, you know, beer. There's obviously like pubs, public houses that, that serve beers and ales at the moment. Where does the, the popularity for gin itself come from? Well, gin is an interesting one because, of course, we have this sort of idea of Hogarth and the 18th century gin craze uh, where the capital is absolutely ravished by cheap drink. You know, you get people sort of dead drunk on the streets, people literally selling uh, small glasses of gin on the streets from trace. You know. So that's gone by the sort of mid-18th century. But gin is still popular, and um, the thing that really brings in the sort of modern pub, which was say known as the gin shop or later on the gin palace, is actually a, basically a tax cut in the 1820s, uh, which the Home Secretary says will be brilliant because basically we've got so much smuggled gin being brought into the country at the moment. We're going to cut taxes, encourage people to bring legal gin. It won't start any more drinking. Look at the continent. You know, they, they have cheaper drink and they don't get totally drunk. He was totally wrong. As soon as they cut taxes in the 1820s, suddenly landlords are making you know, twice as much. The inland revenue is getting twice as much income, even though the taxes have been cut. So the consumption of gin rockets in the 1820s. And landlords capitalise on this. So they build ever grander gin shops. You know, the gin shop starts off... Uh, it's a very nice, well-lit place, but then gas lights coming in, ornate gilding, classical ornament. And these places start to look like really elegant places. Actually, not only just like bright and accessible, but really elegant. And landlords start building ever bigger pubs. And, of course, this is also uh, the sort of proto, the sort of start of the music hall boom as well, because landlords are expanding their premises. They've got a bit of money, and they start to build uh, what they would call concert rooms. And so you get these sort of new spaces being created around the public house, which really change how people experience uh, leisure. Now, we've said that, you know, there's this always this, we think there's this overriding idea of Victorian morality. And there are campaigners. Um, you talk about, you know, Colhoun, for instance, uh, one of the you know the people who's famously is a, is a campaigner against sort of loose morals and, and drunkenness. Um, but of course, you know, the... The forces of commerce, as you said, you know, there's a lot of money to be made out of gin. So this is obviously overriding this. But that upsets other business people. So although we might, you know, there's often this overriding idea that these gin palaces are being shut down by the local councils because of moral reasons. Often it's other brewers no, it's, that are behind it, this. Absolutely. It's often competitors. It's often 
brewers in particular, who beer is not as, proving to be not as popular as gin, particularly after this tax cut in the 1820s, and they demand that the government uh, do something in return. So the government abolishes all tax on beer and inaugurates what's known as the Beer House in 1830, the Beer Act, which basically means anyone could buy a, a two-guinea licence and sell beer without any further regulation. No magistrates, no tax, no nothing. And yet, of course, all this does is create um, another type of sort of really cheap pub. It's weird about with the, sort of the national stories we tell ourselves. So, first of all, it's this idea of the tax cut that, you know, look at the continent. You know, they're temperate. They drink loads of wine. So we can be like, and you know, just like Tony Blair when he changed licensing and so on, you know. It uh, didn't work out that way. We'd, we'd actually drank loads. And then when it gets to the Beer Act in 1830, which is slashing tax on beer, they say, well, this would create a lovely sort of new, sort of very traditional, though, home brewing industry that, you know, is, is going back to the roots of when you had the public house and when it was just a landlord with a few kegs. And this is exactly what doesn't happen because basically anyone who could lay their hand on a barrel of beer starts selling it. So you have people selling beer from their living rooms. If they've got a window that opens onto the street, they're selling beer. And these places become actually much rougher and more dangerous uh, than the traditional pubs. So that backfires as well. And you've got this whole sort of seething competition from brewers, uh, you've got the magistrates involved in the, morality, so the moral side of it, but also uh, the magistrates are very much tied to the brewers and it's often said that the, the moral complaints against these gym palaces are actually just uh, a veil for these more sort of business-related concerns where someone doesn't want a pub to open in the, their area, a new sparkling gym palace. So they say, aha, gym palace, immorality must be shut down. And then, you know, this goes on throughout the century, this sort of push and pull. So Music Hall is deeply, has, has these real antagonists in theatre managers, in West End theatre managers. And there are repeated prosecutions trying to shut down Music Halls uh, for every sort of reason, in particular um, arguing that they were putting on the equivalent of plays. And, you know, the, what was accounting as a play was like someone standing, standing on stage and falling over and, and you're saying one word. But if it could be counted, they'd do it. And so you have this real fierce competition um, amongst business owners, yes. And actually, that's, I think, probably fiercer than all the sort of vigilance associations and societies for the suppression of vice, which we hear a lot about because they made a lot of noise. They published a lot of stuff. Um, but actually, they tell you not to achieve that much. Moving on to the, the music halls, then, as you said, they start to develop out of these drinking establishments. When we talked about your your last book, Dirty London, obviously, from the title, it was it was sort of mainly focused on London and this in this book, you know, you you branch out and look at other areas of the country and the music halls in particular are, are, are something that we see all over the country. Aren't yes, I mean, it's interesting. The The so-called first music hall is often cited as the, the Canterbury in Lambeth, uh, which was certainly the first big... London, really extravagant, dedicated sort of musical with a pub attached, as it were, rather than the way around. Basically, it was in 1854. But if you look at the 1840s, in even late 1830s, there are literally dozens of places working as musicals throughout the country, particularly in the northwest, Manchester, Preston, Bolton, because of this sort of dense industrial conglomerate that's been built up there, sees exactly the same sort of rise in the Gym Palace and the musical um, as London did, and arguably in the 1840s, somewhat somewhat grander scale as well. Who are the, some of the big names of the music hall era? Tell us about some. Well, of I mean, you know, we all know. I think we all know the sort of late Victorians, or you know, the uh, Little Titch or Mary Lloyd or whoever. But uh, the ones I found more interesting, sort of the early stars of a musical. And the, 
the first sort of national star is uh, Sam Cowell, who is he comes from a theatrical family, and he's basically a comic actor slash comic singer, and he's working originally sort of in theatres, and then in the sort of so-called song and supper clubs of Covent Garden, which is the sort of late night satirical comic uh, pub venues where sort of anything goes. But he becomes uh, a big star at the Canterbury. He's credited for sort of keeping the Canterbury going when he was when he might have failed. And he, yeah, he does things like, you know, things we think wouldn't think of happening in the 1850s. He does national tours. He, he goes to America. And his material is really quite dark. It's full of things um, to do with, like, suicide. There's actually a song, and I can't remember the title of it now, about child prostitution in Lambeth. There's a song called Are You Good Natured, Dear?, which is a stock greeting used by metropolitan prostitutes. So it's actually quite bleak sort of social commentary type stuff in a way. Um, but it was said of Cowell that, you know, he was just one of these naturally funny people. He could be silent and just bring a house down with a few seconds silence. So, you know, we know we all know that sort of comedian. And, of course, the famous, you know, the, the, the sad end about Cowell is he, he ends up um, dying of alcoholism, drinking a bottle of brandy a day, which, again, you know, gives us an idea of that whole stardom, mass entertainment thing is already there in the 1850s. And, you know, there weren't as many female sort of big names in the mid-century, um, but there were, again, lots of female singers and, and so on. Annie Adams was one who had a sort of 30- or 40-year career um, in musicals. So in the sort of mid-century, it really starts then. And, you know, the musical career, you get agents appearing. Uh, the whole business of show business is kicking off. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Mm-hmm. 
You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Lee Jackson and we're talking about his latest book, Palaces of Pleasure, From Music Halls to the Seaside to Football, How the Victorians Invented Mass Entertainment. And Lee, I want to move us on to exhibition grounds and something that potentially could be more morally uplifting, shall we say, um, than some of the areas that we've looked at before, although not necessarily, Um the Victorians were really big on their exhibitions, weren't they? Yes, I mean, of course, you know, famously, it all goes back to the Crystal Palace in Hyde Park, but then the Crystal Palace is rebuilt at Sydenham, and, you know, I can't stress enough, it's rebuilt as a commercial venture. You know, the directors of the Crystal Palace at Sydenham are basically the directors of the Brighton and South West Railway. It's tied into railways, bringing uh, punters into the park, and it's very much a business venture with shareholders and trying to make a profit. And yet, equally, it still has this slight sort of uh, sheen from the 1851 exhibition is still seen as a sort of national project at the same time. Uh, Queen Victoria opens it, uh, which some people object to because it's not a government scheme. It's not for the national good, it's for shareholders. And it tries to combine the best of both worlds, really. It tries to be sort of education and amusement in one place, which I think is something, you know, if you look at museums today, it's something people still think about how on earth can you manage that? And it's the the Crystal Palace at Sydenham. It never quite pulls it off, actually, you know. One thing I found really interesting looking at the book was that it makes a profit for its shareholders for the first sort of six or seven years and never again. You know, it struggles on to about 1910 or so, but it never makes a penny for shareholders pretty much after that, which is quite bizarre. So you have this massive throughput of people but can never quite work out how to make money from them. And there are endless arguments about, you know, how entertaining should it be versus how, how educational. You had, had Blondin doing his tightrope walking amongst the, you know, the, the iron girders in the Central Palace. And people saying this is great. And on the other hand, people saying this is absolutely immoral. The guy's up there. He had his daughter up there with him, you know, his little, his little child. He was sitting there cooking breakfast on a, on a, on a stove on the house. What if he falls? And there's all sorts, you know, on the sort of Whitson holidays. On the one hand, you've got these educational ethnographic exhibitions in the main hall. You've got a recreation of, the, of a villa at Pompeii. You've got, you know, artefacts of many. And then in the main sort of gardens on a bank holiday, you have monkeys riding ponies in races. Um, you know, you'd have all sorts of funfair entertainments. You'd have all sorts of nonsense. And they can never quite somehow bring this together, at least to make a profit. And you get other exhibitions after that. And it's, it's interesting. Like, you know, Alexander Palace never makes a penny for anyone. I mean, it's, it's an absolute loss, even when it you know, burns down. But even after that, when they build it up again. And perhaps the, the nicest thing I found in the book was this set of sort of thoughts that the manager of Alexander Palace was writing down in the 80s, how to make money. And it really is like Alan Partridge's monkey tennis. It's absolutely anything that comes through his head from a bear pit, alligator pond to people growing and cutting their own cucumbers and like so the final ones can we get a big group of chimpanzees you know and it really is absolutely anything i need to make money i'll have anything and so this is in alexander palace it's absolute desperation and it's interesting that it's only right at the sort of the end of the century with imri karalfi who is this great uh, theatrical impresario who opens up earl's court and white city um that suddenly you see money being made from the exhibition grounds uh, literally earlier this week, I had the uh, the writer Angela Saini in here talking about her book Superior, in which she talks about uh, an exhibition in Paris in the late 19th century where they had what is fundamentally a, a human zoo. Uh, I'd never come across this concept before, and yet here we are again. In this book, there are yes. numerous examples of... It's 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 really hard to discuss this without just facing it. You know, this is absolutely rank sort of imperialism, colonialism, and and racism at the end of the day. Um, you know, you would you would gather a group of uh, 
indigenous, quote, natives from wherever you could find them, whether it be South Africa, Malaysia, Japan. You would bring them over and you would place them in a recreation of their so-called native environment. So, you know, from mud huts to Japanese, whatever. And you would put them there and they would be on display as a sort of living um, exhibit. I suppose the only the only caveat, you know, this seems now rather just unseemly to say the least. I suppose the only caveat is you do see critiques of this. So in the book, I reproduce a picture from Punch, which is basically of an, uh, a Native American human zoo. And the joke in Punch is actually that the, the onlookers, the, the coarse cockneys uh, looking at these noble savages are actually a worse breed than the people in the zoo. Now, that's a joke at the cockneys' expense, but it sort of does undermine um, the whole context as well. And I think the other thing is, I'd love to talk to your previous um, speakers. I'm 90% certain that the people involved were always performers. So they were in these, quote, human zoos, but they did not live in them. I think they lived in regular Victorian lodgings. Um, So, you know, there's a slight caveat. And equally, you know, we must allow a bit of agency to them. Certainly some of the ones at Earl's Court and White City, they were paid, uh, not much, but they were paid. And, you know, they could choose to leave or be kicked out by the management the same way as a theatrical performer could. So we have to allow a bit of ages there, and they weren't necessarily just, like, plucked. But equally, you know, a, a weird sort of imperialist, colonialist, and that sort of gloss, actually, of empire sits on top of exhibitions from, say, the 1880s. They're as much about sort of fun and excitement and instruction as they are about teaching people about empire, about who we own and what we own across the world. And so if you look at sort of the rifle ranges at Earl's Court, um, they change every year depending who, we, who we've had a siege with that year, you know, or who we're fighting. If we're fighting the Boer War, there's images from the Boer War, you've got to shoot on the rifle range and so on and so forth. And there was, um, I think, oh, I'm trying to remember the name, it's something like a theatrograph or something, which was a live music recruiting show for the Boer War at Hills Court. So you could actually go and join the army whilst you're having fun um, in the theme park. So it all ties in, absolutely. You just mentioned those lonely cockneys, and I wanted to ask, you know, one of these typical exhibitions, the American exhibition at Hills Court or the India and Ceylon exhibition, what would the audience, who would the audience have been made up of for these? these well, I mean, the, the price for an exhibition and entry was normally basically a shilling. So um, that was certainly priced out, you know, the, the casual labourer who, who was, you know, desperate to earn, you know, money for food or what have you. It certainly could include anyone from the working class who was in regular employment of a decent sort. So, you know, that could be a skilled labourer of some kind. It could be a, a clerk, a sort of lowly sort of clerk. It could be anyone who's in a, in a regular income. And, it's, you know, the, the shilling entry from right from the Great Exhibition onwards uh, is seen as the working class price. But it's, you know, it's not the working class who are in the foulest slums in Whitechapel. It's the working class who perhaps have a small house in Walthamstow or, or you know, renting one or, and, and so on. So it, var- it, it varies a bit. But basically, yeah, the sort of upper working class that'd be the, that, and above, that would be the audience. I want to move on to the, the Pleasure Garden and... Again, the idea of the Pleasure Garden is something that predates the Victorian era. Um, but Vauxhall Pleasure Gardens, was most of them had fallen by the wayside, but Vauxhall was still going strong at this time. Yeah, Vauxhall's an interesting one because um, it survives, well, in theory it survives into the 1850s, but you can see it sort of going downhill from the 1820s when it's bought by a trio of entrepreneurs whose main interest is uh, selling the leftover wine from their project, the London Wine Company, where they were trying to sell branded bottles of wine, couldn't shift them. I thought, well, why don't we buy a pleasure garden and we can sell the wine of an evening to people there? And pleasure gardens were basically somewhere you could go 
of an evening in the summer where there could be music, uh, there could be entertainment, you'd walk around or you'd sit in like some little nook or alcove and get sort of light supper, you'd get pleasurably drunk, you'd admire these various sort of special effects, panoramas, dioramas, fireworks, there might be circus acts, tightrope walkers, people walking through fire. Really, pleasure gardens are quite interesting because anything that you could put on in front of the public, you could stick in a pleasure garden and it all became part of this weird sort of phantasmagorical evening entertainment. Um, and Vauxhall, it never quite makes money after the 1820s, partly because the sort of aristocracy who used to patronise it have gone off this sort of idea of mingling with the lower classes and they're doing their own thing. And partly because there is more up-and-coming entertainments. There is musical, there is, pubs are much nicer, you know, and so on. All that sort of thing as well. But there are also absolutely Victorian pleasure gardens. Cremorne Gardens in Chelsea is the famous one, which also got very associated with late-night prostitution. I saw a certain late-night uh, West End set who would sort of pile down there at midnight in their carriages for sort of, you know, carry-on clubbing into the small hours and so on. Uh, but equally, pleasure gardens in Manchester, uh, Bellevue Gardens, was absolutely sedate. Um, you know, it closed at 10pm with God Save the Queen. And, you you know, it, this wasn't late-night gin-drinking and partying. So I think pleasure gardens varied a lot in terms of their sort of moral tone, their sort of customer, their sort of client base. Um, but the thing that the, all, the Victorians brought into the Pleasure Garden was the dancing platform. There was a sudden craze uh, for dancing in the 1840s because of the polka. The polka was this great new dance, which was actually very easy uh, for men to do because the steps weren't very hard. And even if you didn't know, you could sort of, as, as someone puts it, uh, jog along comfortably. As long as you held onto your partner's waist and moved quickly, you were basically winning with the polka. And so dancing suddenly becomes very popular. And Pleasure Gardens built these vast platforms where people can dance on. There's sort of an orchestra in the centre. And I think Bellevue in Manchester has, has this actual rotating platform for the for the orchestra, that 60-piece orchestra, which you can turn to compensate for sort of wind direction. You know, it's amazingly ornate stuff. And they're often highly decorative. And, yeah, dancing becomes outdoors at night of a summer, becomes this sort of big Victorian thing. And that's the cover of the image of my book, this sort of couple manically dancing into the night. And it's colourful, it's bright, it's exciting. And, yeah, I just like that image of the Victorians having out-and-out you know, out out fun, basically. Um, just to finish us off, then, I want to talk about football and basically how the game of football rises as a mass entertainment, a mass spectator sport. Yeah, I mean, football is also fascinating because in the... So 1840s, 1850s, it's been played to a degree of serious in the public schools. And then you get people who've been at the public schools um, taking up at university. And then perhaps when they leave uni, they go to London or whatever and then get their mates together having a kickabout on, you know, on in the marshes or wherever or on in the park. But there's in the 1850s, there's, there's very little going on in terms of football as a sport. It seems this sort of knockabout bit of fun that boys or maybe young men um, might involve themselves in. And yet by 1900, you have 100,000 people going to watch the FA Cup final at Crystal Palace. Between, I think, I'm going to get this wrong, but I think Sheffield and Tottenham, so this sort of north-south grudge match, 100,000 people paying to see football. And that's in the space of, I say in 1850, but that's in the space of really 20 or 30 years. And yeah, it, it's really symbolic of this whole trend towards this bigger and better entertainment and trying to cater for the masses. And what really kickstarts football i think is in the northwest of england in in the 1870s uh, you get an agreed half holiday on saturdays coming in for mill workers so something there's a fixed time uh, you can do football there's increased public transport available which enables teams and supporters to get around to away matches and vice versa and that brings in more and more 
money and increasingly the people who are involved in sort of these just amateur clubs absolutely amateur clubs start seeing that you know there's enough people coming if you were to charge all these people coming you can make a little profit and a little profit becomes bigger and bigger and bigger and there's this real tension between amateurism which is the original ideal of football promoted by sort of middle class public school boys in the south and the sort of northern professionals or pseudo professionals because they're not allowed to say professionals within the sort of setup of the 1870s and it all comes to the head in the 1883 cup final between Eton and Blackburn Olympic. I you know the Blackburn Olympic are like a, a factory team who had to club together to get money to get the train down to London. And you've got Eton and Blackburn Olympic win. And then there's just no stopping it from then. It just takes off. Of course, there's always, as there still is, opposition to you know, the idea of, of working people collecting in such numbers for the football. Yes, I mean, there's, there's some great quotes about you, sort of the sort of anguished excitement on the faces of spectators. There's a horrifying spectacle of these people, you know, involved in the game, you know, thinking of nothing else. And, and yet there is, you know, immediately there is this sort of fan culture. There's sort of like the newspapers about football. There are public houses which say we're the we're the house for you know Bolton Wanderers or the house for sorry let's put out even a team in the ATM but you know team for Blackburn Olympic or Blackburn Rovers Bolton Wanderers was one of the very right. first okay I, yeah, I, yeah. I, I have to be a bit careful with football because I uh, there's so much detail I, I lose track but you know there are basically sort of fanzines almost you know there are public houses so there are memorabilia you know the first England uh, Scotland match in the 1870s you know you, you can buy a photograph of the England team and it's advertised in the Times there are footballs as authorised by the Football Association sold by Lily Whites in the 1870s you know so all this stuff comes in as well and uh, it's looked down on as as these sort of brutal pleasures of the working class and particularly the importing of Scottish players who are some of the most skilled players in the 1880s you know there's some real absolutely racist comments about these you know these Neanderthals as they're basically uh, described by you know and it is this class tension as well it's very much this sort of middle class of middle class amateurs versus uh, the working classes not wholly working class because often those teams were managed by sort of mill owners factory owners people who are sort of middle class as well really but from a very different sort of social background and dynamic and yeah there's this real sort of it's right from the gym palace at the start of the, of the century to football um there's this thing like oh my god you know the poor they're enjoying themselves without control we need to control them and yet you know you know it never quite it never quite works there's always a way at the end of the day to have fun so i've been talking to lee jackson we've been talking about his latest book palaces of pleasure which is out now from Yale University Press. Lee, thank you so much for sharing it with us. Thank you for having me, brilliant. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, edited by Sky Redman, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89up and hosted by Acast. If you enjoyed the show, please do subscribe, rate us on iTunes, and even tell a friend. Thanks for listening. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. 
Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.